From talkradio.nyc, welcome to At Home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and owner of David Thiergartner Interiors right here in beautiful Manhattan. On tonight's show, Prelude. My guest tonight is furniture and lighting designer, showroom owner Dennis Miller from Dennis Miller Associates. Before I see it, Dennis Miller sees it first. Dennis Miller Associates is a professional trade resource for fine contemporary furniture, extraordinary lighting, and carpets. The showroom is dedicated to providing trend-setting luxury designs created by the by the very best of today's furniture and lighting designers. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. What happens before? Before the overture? Before the first page of a book? Before the project begins? Before the interior designer is hired? Before the furniture has been selected or the fabrications have been ordered? What is the prelude to an interior design masterpiece? It seems, doesn't it, very much like the opening page of a good book or the overture to a Puccini opera. It's exciting. It stirs our imagination. It allows us to envision the possibilities, the inevitable choices, the numerous decisions, and all the wonder that lies ahead. Preludes are where the story begins, the introduction to something, to a story not yet told, or to a grand vision, a grand plan. It's exciting and a bit anxiety-ridden, and tonight we are going to talk all about the preludes to the interior design of a home. Pablo Picasso said about his creations, I begin with an idea, and then it becomes something else. I like that, Pablo. I like it a lot. I begin with an idea. But isn't that the prelude to everything? An idea, a concept, a thought? Good design comes from good ideas. And so many of our good ideas come from paying attention to what surrounds us, comprehending and digesting what we see. The arch of a tree branch over a pathway becomes the perfect flat arch architectural detail for the entryway door or the color harmony of a field of wildflowers magically becomes inspiration for the wallpaper and the fabric of a new bedroom seeing it acknowledging it understanding it and interpreting it for a different purpose maybe with a different meaning a new meaning using it for a different idea. That's the prelude to a design story. I've always been fascinated by where ideas come from, how the ideas pop into the mind. What is the inspiration or the genesis to the prelude, the prelude to a design? If you know me, you know that I am a gardener and that I'm a dahlia freak. I planted my dahlia garden over the weekend and it always reminds me of this phenomenal design story. The indigenous people of Mexico thousands of years ago used the thick and long dahlia stalks as plumbing, moving water from a source yards and yards and yards away to where they needed the water to be. Now, I love dahlias for the breathtaking, dinner plate-sized, brilliant colored flowers, but it would have never occurred to me to use the fibrous, long, and hollow dahlia stalk as a plumbing pipe. Is it possible that 
they never ever imagined that it would one day become the equivalent to modern plumbing. It's not like they had a Home Depot and used or saw PVC piping before. But I digress, and dahlias have a tendency to do that to me. So more importantly, and what brings me to the conversation tonight with furniture and lighting designer, showroom owner Dennis Miller, is that before I have an idea, before I see it, Dennis Miller sees it first. Dennis Miller and the showroom, Dennis Miller showroom, is the prelude to an interior design composition. As a showroom owner, Dennis sees the future. He anticipates his clients' needs and he sets the style for what the future holds. Dennis informs the designer, the architect, to take a look at what he saw first, what he determined was important, what he assessed as quality, what makes or determines good design in the first place. Before I see that unique base of a table or the artistry of a light fixture, perhaps the mixed materials, materials and the curvaceous profiles of my favorite coffee table in the showroom, before I see it, Dennis Miller has already determined that these materials, these profiles, this particular style, this concept are the elements to a good interior design composition. The functional process of designing is about layout, the plan. It's, you know, is there enough space uh, for passage? What is the scale and proportion of a sofa to the cubic volume of a living room? What is the perfect appliance triangle for a new kitchen? But the art of interior design is about the idea, the concept, the inspiration, and the story that is about to be told. And furniture the lighting, the rugs, these pieces, they are the prelude, the prelude, the movement, the crescendo, the finale. They are all the elements that make this masterful composition. And when we know that, as we know that all good books, all great movies, all exciting Broadway musicals, all meaningful interior design projects, they all start with a damn good prelude. When we come back, my conversation with Dennis Miller. This is At Home. I'm David Thiergartner, and we'll be back in two minutes. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're, We're your digital, digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
My guest tonight is Dennis Miller, owner of one of the finest professional interior design trade showrooms I'm fortunate enough to know. Dennis Miller Associates right here in the New York Design Center at 200 Lexington Avenue in this beautiful city called Manhattan. Dennis, welcome to At Home. Glad to be here, David. I'm so happy that you're here. It's so wonderful that uh, you're here with us tonight. You know, um, I ask each and everybody the same question when we start off, and that is, what is your meaning of beauty, and more specifically, what is beautiful in your home? Uh, I've been reflecting on that as I've been at my home more this season, and what is intriguing to me is the light that comes through the house. The light allows me to see the objects that I have in the house, and I'm in a process of really examining them and paring them down. What I like is that it reminds me of the history of the, of the object, where it came from, who's it, wh whom it belonged to. I have many things that were in the family. They bring me enormous pleasure. So... I don't know about everybody listening, but um, and of course, I don't know the answers. But here's a man who has had one of the finest um, designer showrooms in Manhattan for the last 35 years. So I thought he was going to list a whole bunch of beautiful, beautiful things. He's seen everything throughout the world. He's edited everything throughout the world. And you said light, which I think is just incredibly beautiful that you said that. And then family memorabilia or family objects and it just shows it just says so much about um, how beauty is individual and how it is meaningful in different ways to different people collecting also is a big part of it i was lucky enough to have those things uh, to begin with and then went on to travel to see things to acquire things in travel and to look for things even in this country that were meaningful to me. I was lucky enough to be exposed to a great uh, number of very creative artists who were doing fantastic things in the craft world early on mm -hmm. in the 80s, early on in my career, and to identify with them ways that they could expand that vision and, and find a larger market, an appreciative audience that would love to see these things. And one of the things that appealed to me was to find ways to share that with other people. The other people I knew were interior designers and architects. Wow. So that is the prelude to your story as a showroom owner. Absolutely. Uh, my background is architecture. I studied architecture. I have a degree uh, in architecture, and I practiced with design firms, architecture firms in New York, and then was on my own briefly and had an interior design practice as well. And at a certain point, I realized this is nice, but there are other <laughs> things that can be a lot more fun. <laughs> Being an architect in New York, to those who are listening, is a very, very difficult and challenging profession. As I would have <laughs> Yeah, we're all we're all laughing, as I would imagine being a showroom owner would be, too, because that's a whole um, different set of um, of uh, talents. And, and you're, you're you're theoretically a great editor, like a great editor of a magazine or something. You have tremendous amount of product in front of you all the time and you're trying to build or create the style of your showroom, not um, dissimilar than what you would for somebody's home. Uh, that's exactly right. But there were no limits because <laughs> I, could acquire, <laughs> I could acquire as many objects as I wanted. Yeah. And in maybe fact, that's what makes it so intriguing. In fact, the first things that I did was to find a number of artists and put them together in a gallery show. It really was a temporary uh, installation. Mm -hmm. um, the showroom. Yeah. Yes, and, and it really, I approached it as a gallery owner would, showing artists. Um, and that meaning craft, but also then furniture became a part of that, yes? Furniture designers were doing amazing things mm -hmm. at that time in New York, and there really were a series of venues where this work was 
accessible, and they would go in and out of business. And I was lucky enough to find a lot of these designers at a moment when they needed exposure. They needed a showroom, if, if you will, in order to show their work. And it was the beginning of a really wonderful affair with personalities. And that's what's always driven our showroom and my work. I was going to say that same character is alive today in your showroom. Your showroom is distinctively different than any other showroom of its type, either in your building or the other design building up the street. And, um, and it has that character and that interest that I think is so um, exciting to be a part of. One of the things that from the outset was very important to me was the artist getting recognition for the work. I loved it when the collection of furniture or lighting was the name of the artist because really that's what I wanted to present to mm. people. Now I have no control over how businesses are structured. Some of them have corporate names. That's fine, but we always do present it is such and such a company by the designer. By the designer. Th that is so important. People want that personal relationship to what they're looking at, to what they're going to buy. And just so we understand, everybody, we're in the mid-80s, let's say, right? Theoretically, 35 years ago. But the other showrooms, and I'm now not quite there yet. I started uh, right in the 90s, but a close. Youngster. Uh, and Thank you. And um, But... Um, the other showrooms were corporate, uh, sort of large North Carolina concerns or European concerns that were representing their furniture in, in the United States, correct? So you were seeing like a Bernhardt or a Thomasville as a part of a, uh, a showroom collection. Well, we also had wonderful things like uh, Stendig or IC ICF, for example, which were bringing in lesser known European brands at the time. Those designs were very driven by the industrial designer, interior designer, architect, who was designing that furniture. That was always very appealing to me, whereas some of the larger corporate showrooms were just vanilla yeah. markets of furniture. And right. So from that model, since I was an interior designer working professionally in New York, the model of oh, it's a sofa by Joe Colombo, or it's a Mario Bellini yeah. piece of furniture. Yeah. Well, we could interpret that into America and present that with American names. They had to start somewhere. They weren't well-known, but we could bring them into the arena. So this is so interesting because we're, we're, we're beginning to talk about how you see things. And that's um, so important when we're selecting or deciding, or in your case, editing, or in my case, editing too, but selecting pieces for my client is how you see things. So you're interested in the craft and the, 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 the talent of the individual designers. Can you go a little bit deeper? Was there something particular? In other words, did you like the, the homespunness of it all? Did you like the originality and the personality of the pieces that they were creating? Was it that it was just different and, and unlike other things in the marketplace? What were you seeing that you were so uh, drawn to? So there was this great pool of American talent that probably didn't want necessarily or know how to address a broader market. Mm. And though I would really like their work, I would encourage them to make something that was more, if I can use this word, marketable into the interior design environment. So that if they created something that was at a craft show or unique, but they didn't know that they could make it in a different size or slightly different materials or bigger. Or bigger, yeah, or yeah, custom size, yeah. Right. How would they enter this arena? Um, that was what I liked the, uh, to, to find for them. Well, you're almost being a mentor on some level, right? I mean, you have this venue uh, that allows you to bring artists that you're interested in and almost teach them the craft of selling their product to professional interior designers. Exactly. It was sort of to take them out of one realm and go into another. It wasn't so hard a jump for many of them, but some of them really 
fell apart doing it. They really couldn't keep up with well, that that idea. As you and I know, and we talk about this a lot as far as, you know, I think everybody might realize this, that you can be an artist, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have management skills or production capabilities either, right? It's one thing to create it. It's another thing to then create 17 of them in a year. And in a time frame. And that was one of the biggest things for them to understand. And I think it's that still, would be difficult. it still is for an artisan. <laughs> you are working in is. the real world. Yeah. You have to produce something within an expected period of time. Yeah, there's that, that is still a challenge to this day. And, um, and I just want to go back real quickly. We're talking about custom sizes. And, I, and just for people that are listening, when you walk into a showroom like Dennis Miller Associates, on the 12th floor of the New York Design Center, you're going to see a vast array of different furniture. You're going to see upholstered furniture and hard goods, case good furniture and lighting and stuff like that. In all of those choices that you have, you can do almost whatever you want to that piece, right? I can take that sofa that I love and make it 12 feet instead of how it's shown in the showroom at six feet or within a parameter of certain sort of thing. You can certainly change the color of it, change the finish of the wood, all of that sort of thing. So there's all of this flexibility that goes into the piece that you're seeing. And and that is from a production standpoint, that is a huge challenge. We're, We're there to help the interior designer. It's the interior designer's vision that creates the project, that creates the environment for his or her client. So we're only there to give suggestions. And one of the wonderful aspects of what we can do is that we can adapt to size or finish or multiple of custom options. And we let the designer, the interior designer, our customer, imagine what they want. And, and that, interpreting that back to the creator is really our function. And it's fun to have that dialogue between them. We're the intermediary most of the time, but we love the the back and forth between creator and imagine. I love how you said that. And that that's so clear and easily understood. And it's it's a wonderful way to understand the role of a showroom or your sales rep in a showroom and how it all functions. Um, so you have this interesting collection of designers. You guys represent 20, maybe 18 or 20 different designers, I think. Yeah, about 20 different designers right. of furniture and lighting. And they're similar and dissimilar. I mean, you have, you know, you represent famous 20th century designers like um, Rob's John Gibbings. And then you are have like what I would call the articulation of like uh, Robert Nagar, right? It seems so articulated and fresh and specific and then you have the irish designer coda right yes and sculptural sculptural shapes that i love like from david um or darren um a darren vigilant vigilant right so where are all of this where you know is it that you focus on the individual designer and what they have to offer or are you concerned about the collection that the showroom is representing or are you trying to fill in missing pieces of what you think is necessary? How does your head work as far as amassing the collections that you do? It's very hard to put something together that really works all as an ensemble. And designers... On the floor, on the showroom on floor. On the showroom floor. And therefore, what we choose to represent. Yes. Okay. Obviously, the showroom having a limited size can't show everything that's available. Um the mix of finding the right companies and individuals to work with is a challenge, but it's one we enjoy. We know that we are generally American in design. This is very distinctive from anything European or Asian in the furniture world. It has to do with materials and scale and and aesthetics. But we've learned that very early in our careers, this is where we have a comfortable zone. And within that, we have to keep the creativity fresh. Uh, I mean, that's fascinating. And I'm not sure that, I, you know, all these years later that I realized that it would, I mean, it does 
appear to be American when you start to parse and parcel all the different design elements and styles and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be 100% sure that I didn't realize that there wasn't uh, some amazing French uh, furniture designer in that mix. So that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that. We do have one North American. We have a Canadian company whom uh-huh. we love very much. Yes, I do too, by the way. <laughs> uh, Pal and Bonnell, yes. yes. Yep, I don't know how many bar stools I've used from <laughs> Pal and Bonnell. Well, but keep using them. <laughs> yeah, in the dozens for, uh, for sure. You know, Dennis, you have, um, just to continue on, this idea of how you see things and, and what the showroom represents to designers and architects, but you have this very sophisticated taste. How did you... Or can you just talk about the process of how your eyes and how your taste levels uh, develop through, you know, the generate or through the decades? Was that was that innate for you? Did, did you always feel that maybe you had an understanding of what was in front of you? I think I was very fortunate to grow up in a household where design was really revered. OK. Wow. Um, and there are some terrific um, objects that. I was lucky enough to be surrounded by. But my education, I think, also helped. Uh, Being an architecture student at Cornell University in the 60s was a fascinating and uh, very instructive time. It was very rigidly uh, based in post-Bauhaus, more Corbusian style of design. But our education was about form, about the history of architecture and design and art. And I think that formation was uh, really something that was very fortunate. I had always had an artistic bent as a child. I painted, I did ceramics. Um, I was lucky enough to be exposed to art as a youngster. I knew from very early on that I wanted to be an architect. But I do think it's this formation. And then where I worked, Post college, okay, which uh, was? At, which was first in Europe in Geneva, okay, okay. and then in New York at okay. IMP and then Davis Brody. Great formation, okay. and I think that that's an important part of uh, forming design ideas. Um, it's one of the reasons that I posted on Instagram some of the photos of the showroom to give everybody who's listening an idea of just how sophisticated um, Dennis's. Um, taste are and his sense of style are because it it is truly unique when you walk into the showroom that you are you are seeing something different than you are seeing in the average uh, design showroom uh, that we visited quite often and so that's I mean that's a beautiful pedigree of of development and of of how you would master having such a sophisticated eye I just uh, that, that was a wonderful story thank you so much listen Dennis and I are going to be back and one of the things that I'm most fascinated by is transcending and how Dennis sees the future um, and how he helps his designers and architects help him help us see the future too but we're gonna before we do that we're gonna listen go back 300 years and listen to one of the greatest preludes of all time, which is the Bach Cello Suite Number no. 1. You are listening to At Home on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. 
We are talking to Dennis Miller and take a look at the Denner, Dennis Miller Associates website, which is exactly that, and um, and get inspired there for your next project. It's pretty easy to do. And actually, Dennis, I wanted to tell you because um, just in getting ready for the show, I kind of really worked the website and it's one of the easiest, nicest, most functional furniture showroom websites out there. It was so lovely to sort of page through so thank you for uh, thank you for yeah. that or whoever's doing that um also you can follow the showroom which is a lot of fun on instagram which is also <clears throat> excuse me dennis miller associates um and so do that and then send your questions uh for for the show tonight to david at david com and just put in the subject line at home and we'll get to that is right after our next break. So listen, I want to talk about the future because I think it's so interesting because it's a little nerve wracking. Um, maybe, I guess, even for an interior designer is that we're always in a situation where we're pushing our clients past their comfort zone. I think it's one of the reasons that they hire us, even if they don't know it, but certainly to... Um, to design what what they've had in the past for a different home or a different apartment doesn't make any sense to me at all. So how do we push them forward? And then it's people like Dennis Miller who allow us to see new things and to see things that we're going to use into the future. And so where is that sense that you don't go over the cliff, Dennis? When, when do you know that you're not pushing uh, the aesthetic too far forward? Or is, is is that not even the right question? But but how do you interpret or see the future? What's important well, to it's you? It's always a very good question, and our, our clients are always looking for that. Um, you know what, though? I often look at past history. Meaning? Well, I look at the past, uh, maybe decades back, maybe okay. half a century back. One of the things that we always were happy to do was to create an environment and to show classic work of the 20th century. Now, that's not the only thing that we do because we have a lot of 21st century and we always want to move forward. But because um, I was so smitten by the work of Rob's John Gibbings and we were allowed to uh, reproduce the furniture line for line on authorized copies, we're very happy to introduce that. And we've had that for 20 years, and we uh, it's ongoing. It's right, very popular. Everybody to know, one of the great all-time mid-century American furniture designers of all time. And he created a line that probably many listeners, parents or grandparents had, very because it was sold in department stores all over the country. Uh, this was an English interior designer who came to America, and he did individual projects, but also did a licensed collection for John Whittacombe. So another one that we found, which was fantastic, was the work of Morris Lapidus, who was the designer architect of many famous hotels of the 50s in Miami Beach. It's not just the idea of bringing back something old. It has to have a very good pedigree. One of the things early on that we had that fascinated me was a whole retinue of Danish design. Mm -hmm. Now we, we, we did handle this for quite a while. We're not really deep into this now, but the work of Hans Wegner or Oli Vanscher, some of the great mid-century Danish designers expressed exactly what I liked in the sculptural and idiosyncratic nature of furniture, while at the same time making it very comfortable. But we work with contemporary American designers like Clodo or Patrick Nagar or Wendell Castle. So it's been a great pleasure of my life to have known Wendell Castle, who died a couple of years ago. I didn't know that. And he was probably the dean of American studio art furniture. Very highly collected in his art furniture and his artwork, which he created really rather late in his life. But he also designed furniture for production. And we're so happy and so proud to be able to present that to people. It's still very cutting edge, even though the designs are 15 or 20 or older uh, in years. 
So I posted what is my favorite coffee table from Window Castle on Instagram. So everybody take a look at this because I'm going to ask you this next question. When you take Gibbings and then you take Castle, right? And theoretically, they would be fantastic together in the same room. And so can you help our listeners try to understand some 50, 60 year time span difference and the characteristics? And you said sculptural, you said idiosyncratic sort of thing. Is that is that the is that the tension and is that um, the interest that the two pieces would have together? I think um, very much it can fall into that line of thinking, but. The other aspect of it, which I think is very important, is the nature of the material. What is he doing with wood? What did Gibbings do with wood? How did he join wood together to make this chair? And what is Wendell Castle doing with fiberglass and wood? Because that's the table that you love. Yes. And um, that is an amazing mixture of materials. And so... Sensitivity to materials is something that we strive for. The honesty of how an artist works with the materials that he or she has chosen to do is really what makes the furniture special. And so, yes, and that's so important. And I think one of the big distinctions 20th century to 21st century is that 21st centuries tend to like to use mixed materials a lot, like you said, fiberglass and wood for castle but there is also that sculptural element because the castle coffee table is so it's a contemporary piece it is a work of sculpture sculpture right but so is the turned leg of a gibbings chair yes absolutely the the bulbous nature of the the fluting as it goes down to the foot right i mean there's so they they have i guess they have that in common as well I think that that's a thread that we like to see throughout all our furniture. Yeah. and it's, it, They don't all look alike, but there's a sculptural nature to it. One of our favorite designers is, a, is an artisan who started his career as a, a, a sculptor, a fine art sculptor. Okay. And for some reasons, he turned many years ago into making furniture. But every piece is individually made by him. And it is a work of art, and it is a sculpture. It's a totally functional dining table or coffee of table course, of course. or bookcase. And you would look at it and think it's a piece of furniture, except when you start to look at the detail of what he puts into the metal and how he chooses his stone or wood and how it's done and how they integrate. This is a work of art. And what fascinates me is that this artist, Harris Rubin, is passionate about everything he does. He won't let anything out of his studio that isn't first rate. He will stop the furniture from being delivered if he thinks he can do better on it. And this is a this is one of the challenges wow. of getting an artist to understand this very pedestrian world we live in, where people have expectations of a product. But the heart that comes through is so important and and adds to the value immeasurably. So this, Dennis, is um, you're just hitting on the nail our 12 to 16 week lead time, which is so challenging for most interior design firms to handle because in today's world with the internet and with pushing a button, i.e. Amazon, and getting it the next day, if not two hours later, it's hard for people to understand that things take 12 to 16 weeks. But in that case of that furniture designer who's sending you a piece of art that he is working on with his eyes and his hands and his tools, you can kind of understand the lead time. It's a very challenging spot to be a, a provider of furniture to a commercial world. We have the exigencies of a project when an interior designer customer has to produce something and deliver it. And on the other hand, we're working with artists, artisans, small factories who are creating things with the necessary time frame that they need to make something and then get it delivered. We're very aware of this. And I think that the world is changing. In fact, we are instituting a quick ship program for some of our products. Now, that may mean that limited size or limited choice of finish or other limitations will help. But this world that I represent is based on an artisanry 
that really can't move into a totally uh, integrated technological world. It can't be totally automated. It would lose its soul and it would lose its value. Nevertheless, we understand that sometimes designers need to fulfill a need more quickly than the standard lead time. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I, I noticed, and it's one of the questions I have down the line, is that I noticed that the quick ship uh, program was uh, predominantly uh, shown at the beginning of the website, uh, which is an interesting thing for you guys to do. And it really is us trying to balance out, us being interior designers, trying to balance out how many pieces of true artistry we can have in one house um, and wait for and and uh, and tie together, you know, uh, it, to make sense of it. So it's not a gallery; it's a it's a home. And then, what pieces can we get relatively quickly? And and doesn't need as much custom sizing or as many custom finishes as um, something else perhaps would. And that balance is uh, is uh, is a challenge sometimes. I think online shopping is really going to change a lot of this uh, quite dramatically. I think it's going to present challenges to the interior designer. Uh, one of the things is that uh, the customer, the interior designer's client, is going to have access to information much more quickly yes. and put pressure on the interior designer perhaps that didn't exist before. No question. I mean, we're already seeing that, and that's been the big change in the last 10 years, I would say, no doubt. We're running out of a little bit of time, so I want to make sure that I get all of these uh, questions in uh, that I just am so anxious to ask you. Um, can you possibly tell me what you think is the most important skill that you possess as a showroom owner? Like, what, what's the, or maybe two or three, or what, what's the most important thing that you bring to the table? To have a clarity of vision of what you want to present to the world, I think that's one of the hardest things to get across. You know, I'm dealing, I'm not designing this furniture. Right. I'm really relying on collections and artists and furniture makers and manufacturers that I have access to that I can bring out to my clientele. So, I'm constantly bombarded by collections that seem interesting or maybe seem quite saleable to some or seem of the moment. I've got to evaluate, does that work with what we do? Is that true to our vision? Is that going to integrate well with what we already have? Is that going to bring something new to our clientele that they're going to appreciate? All of those things matter. The other thing that's very important to me is the consistency of dealing with our clientele. We adore our clientele. We treat them very well. You do. I have an amazing team uh, working with me who've been with me for years and years, most of them. And we really embrace our clientele. We want to give them the best service we possibly can. I mean, being a showroom owner, it's partly about that. I mean, we wouldn't exist without our customers. We have to embrace them and treat them very well. Most everything that is done well usually has five, six different hats to uh, put on to make that possible. I did love your opening statement to that question, which was the clarity of vision presented to the world. And I think that is so profound and so beautifully said. And I think it's one of the challenges that all interior designers try to uh, help their clients understand. And so thank you so much for helping us. Uh, set that vision for our clients as well. It's been an incredible pleasure for me to have you on the show tonight, and I'm very grateful. Will you stick around and take some questions? Absolutely. Thank Terrific. you, David. Thank you so much. We'll be back in two minutes. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 
Best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com Hey, Dennis, so we have some great questions here. I'm looking at them as they're coming in right now. Here's the first one. This is Sherry and Jay, I'm assuming maybe New Jersey. Um, hey, David, I've never understood trade pricing. Could you please explain? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Right off the... I understand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, but we're not going to tell you. No. <laughs> I think the interior design profession came from a very... My understanding of it is came from a very secretive kind of... Uh, quiet uh, access, uh, limited access. So uh, as exclusive, ex- exclusive to decorators. Yeah. And, and maybe they started using shops or little workrooms or artisans. As showrooms developed, they wanted to make the distinction between what an interior designer would pay for something and what the public would pay for something. And maybe the public couldn't even go into that showroom. So now there's this terminology, trade pricing, and it is the preferred pricing that a design professional will receive from a source. Yeah, that, I mean, that pretty much what, it. What is the difference? It's less than the retail price. Right. So, yeah, there's a couple things with that. I mean, one, those, that, that, those boutiques or whatever, to me, was always sort of a King's Road, mm-hmm. London sort of phenomenon, right, where there would be a boutique and... There'd be bolts of fabric out front and they would be doing upholstery goods and and all of that. And they tried to make their shops exclusive to professionals like architects or interior decorators at the time and try to keep away. I, I know that this to be true for, you know, people who don't want to deal with the people off of the street bringing in their, you know, their their dining room chair cushions to get reupholstered. And so the pricing was to sort of dissuade people from coming in and then help the interior designer. The other thing, too, is that interior designers, one of the main principles of how there's a lot of different pricing and there's been no there's been no uniform pricing in the interior design world. But some designers charge what is an added value to their pricing. And so let's say 30 percent. And that happened because the old boutiques and stuff used to give 30 percent off. 40% 40% off. And the idea was that you got the service for the same price as if you were paying retail for it. In concept, it could have been very much like that. Uh, it's very much an American and English concept of how design objects are purchased. Even though interior designers and architects exist in continental Europe, for example, access to furniture is much more democratic. And the pricing is closer uh, parity of retail to trade, if you will, than we have as a system in this country. It's fast changing in this country, I will say. It's incredibly fast changing. Literally, I would say in the last 
five, six, seven, eight years, I feel like there's pressure for it to change. There are many people working toward transparency of pricing and uh, which will lead to a better understanding of what an interior designer can do because an interior designer is not there to save you money and get a better price. An interior designer or architect is there to create a project for you that will withstand uh, time, will work well for you, and solve your needs. And customize to you and your family. I think that's very well said. But also, you know, in my firm, we're very trans... Um, transparent in in our billing and in our, in our records as, as well as many designers yeah. are these days yeah I, I believe that they are yeah so here's one from grand k do you re rep oh i think we hit this but let's just try do you represent all the pieces from each manufacturer or do you select the individual pieces that pieces that you're interested in definitely we select the pieces that uh we think will work on the floor from that manufacturer we can't have everything if we take on a collection we have the whole collection and generally, we're exclusive in New York, in the territory, for that company, that, that furniture company. So, for instance, if you're in California and you're at a friend's house or whatever, and you saw a dining room table that you fell in love with, and you go back to Dennis Miller, and they represent the line, but the dining room table is not on the floor, doesn't mean that you guys couldn't possibly make that happen for them. Oh, absolutely. That's what we do. In fact, a lot of our inquiry these days is coming from... Not people looking on the floor, but looking on our website um, or Instagram or Pinterest and finding the product and then wanting information on it. They may never see it on our floor. That's right. That's another challenge. We could have a whole other show about That's pricing a whole and, discussion. <laughs> and, and seeing things uh, before you buy it. Here's one from... Markham, Markham, Markham Riley. Hi, I'm an interior designer from California, and I noticed that the showrooms that showrooms don't seem to change their look very often. Is there a reason for that? Just think of the expense of creating new furniture to be on a showroom floor. Uh, it's not that we don't want to. In fact, in our showroom, <clears throat> we do it at least once a year, maybe four times a year, because new products are coming in all the time. Now, we're not going to completely change what we have, but as new companies join us, as new products are developed, we will take them onto our floor. And you could change the composition of what you already have. We rearrange furniture all the time. Yeah, and so I think this brings us <clears> to <throat> the next question, which I think is really interesting. This is Judy D. Freight has become so expensive, which you basically just highlighted, that you know changing the floor means delivering all of this merchandise to you. Are there additional, uh, is that because there are additional markups? Now, I know this to be true. I got a, um, a new leather coffee table, sliding table sort of thing. It literally, the shipping from California was a third, if not more, the cost of what the piece was, concreted and all of that sort of stuff. And um, it is becoming a challenge on how much freight and shipping cost is. Is that because the showrooms are taking additional markup on that? No, I don't think that's uh, what it is. I think that shipping furniture, shipping fine furniture is very expensive. Yeah, There's no way around that. It's wrapped we and it's protected. We generally like to estimate, <clears throat> and don't hold me to it, 12 to 15% of the net price of the furniture. That doesn't always cover it. It depends on the volume. It depends on the size. depends on the number of pieces. So wait, say that again. You'd like to cover one more time. We will try to estimate the furniture shipping price at about 15% of the net price of the furniture. That's, that's a, you can't hold it to every single purchase. That It, it doesn't work. I see, I see. But as a general rule of thumb... It might be something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Here's one from JD. It says, hey, Dennis, David posted his favorite coffee table from the collection. What is your favorite piece from your collection? I knew someone was going to come uh, up with that. That's a good. Me. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll post it after you say it. Oh, well, then I have to think of it. I have so many favorites. Oh, you don't want it's like naming your favorite child? It's is like that what naming it? your favorite okay, child. Can you, would you be comfortable giving us maybe a couple or three? I love Wendell Castle's work. Okay. And we cited the uh, is, sizzle table. Yeah. I think um, Harris Rubin's work is exceptional. He's the uh, metal sculptor. Mm. 
Um, and Junho is an amazing visionary. He is uh, an American living in California who travels around the world, and his work represents uh, inspirations he's had throughout um, Asia, South America, and Europe. Wow. Wow. So, okay, so that's fantastic. So if you, you can go on the website, and right there it says collections. You can hit on any of those. But you should probably take a look at all of Dennis's favorite children because they're all listed there, all 20 of them or 20 plus, and take a look because it's a lot of fun. And I think that you will also get an understanding of what Dennis and I were talking about as far as what makes something special, what makes something unique, what makes something idiosyncratic, what makes something more special than something else. And it's all right there on the website waiting for you to take a look. And I as I like all my children, <laughs> they all have to get along with each other. And, and I think when you look at the whole collection, you'll probably see that they really do live well together. You know, we talk a lot about composition and, you know, it's it's one thing you and I have been focusing tonight on individual artistry and individual pieces. But it is the composition of the entire home that is one of the great skills that a professional interior designer and a professional interior design showroom can provide for a for their clients. Do you agree? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Listen, we are out of time, and I can't thank you again. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And um, I've 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 enjoyed our conversation so very much for so many reasons, and I'm grateful that you were here. Listen, I want to thank everybody here at uh, TalkRadio.nyc. And um, <laughs> uh, everybody else uh, that I'm trying to remember who I'm thanking here right now. But uh, Lord have mercy. Uh, my nephew for my theme music, Benjamin Keegan. I'm having trouble here thinking about that. And then remember to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at home with DTI schoolhouse number six productions. I couldn't do it without you and I wouldn't want to try. Remember to take a look at my website as well, which is David interiors.com and stay tuned for the Noreen Sumter show beyond potential live life your way. And until next week on the radio, remember the best designs for your life start at home. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 